if we do end up in this cloud world where you have hundreds of apps and each of those apps has 40, 50 different permissions roles, that problem is going to exponentially grow to the point that you're really not going to have any idea who's got access to what and whether that access is appropriate. Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by SoftCat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on the detail. Welcome back to part two of our Ask Us Anything. I'm your host, Zach Abbott. Joining me once again on this episode is Craig Lazinski, SoftCat's Chief Technologist for Data and Emerging Tech. Adam Harding, SoftCat's Chief Technologist for End User Computing. Adam Lucas, SoftCat's Chief Technologist for Cybersecurity. And Dean Gardner, SoftCat's Chief Technologist for Cloud Technology. Without further ado, let's jump back into the questions. So, Lord's question for you. Um, what is the future of AI in the world of work? Um, is it really a positive thing? We've we've talked a lot about intent and and how organisations use technology and an AI is a very contentious one. I think overall, and this doesn't just apply to AI, this applies to pretty much all technologies, including things like monitoring, including the way that organisations structure their use of technology. You know, locking down laptops, that all aspects is about trust um, and it's about ethics. And I think we need to take a much more ethically rigorous standpoint Um, we need to understand humans as individuals and the interaction between software and human is still largely dictated by very rough areas and in ai you can get a lot of false signals because it's not designed to be holistic in most ai machine learning programs you talk about things like degrees of certainty and a lot of the perception of AI is it's kind of binary, it's yes or no, whereas actually it's it's based on a spectrum, these decisions. And when we look at things like AI-based productivity monitoring, saying, oh, this, this worker has, if we look at a, a fulfillment center for a large online shopping organization, saying, oh, this worker hasn't picked as many items this week, therefore they're in the bottom quartile, and those are the people we're going to let go automatically. And their jobs are dictated by an AI. That is taking an individual down to their their most basic productivity characteristics. That's not a very nice or ethical thing to be doing. Conversely, you can use those same technology, those same signals to understand, okay, well, what is the reason behind that? Do we need to fine tune our process because this employee is having to walk further to pick those items than another person? Is this employee potentially injured or ill or struggling at home? What can we do to help them to get through this and have that duty of care to the employee as as an employer? And that's probably going to be tricky in a lot of low-paid roles because given the huge global recession we're entering, given the amount of job losses we've seen, labour supply is going to increase dramatically. And that's going to create a, a pool where employers that want to be hostile to their employees probably can be, particularly in countries that don't have great social security measures, that don't have great social welfare programs to protect those that are out of work. So there is there is a lot of risk in, in using these things. We look at AI-based video interviewing techniques. We'll 
there's implicit biases build a lot of AI and machine learning technologies because of the data sets, because of the people that are working on them, because we don't have a huge amount of diversity in STEM and IT that can manifest itself back out. On the other side, you know, looking at the, at the bright side of things, you can have AI-triggered interventions to say, hey, you've been sat in front of this, this machine for 16 hours now. You need to take a break. This is not good for you. You know, you've, you've taken too long on, on this task. You're probably not doing a great bit of work right now. You know, we're locking you out for 20 minutes. Go and do something. Take a break. Here's some, here's some resources from our HR team to help you relax, to help you de-stress, to understand earlier okay, what's, what are the correlations and how can we trigger earlier to understand if, if an employee is feeling unwell, to understand, okay, well, based on fever screening technologies that a lot of organizations have been looking at recently, and, you know, elevated skin temperature isn't a perfect measure. It's not a diagnostic tool. It's a, it's a warning. But if you can use these tools to better understand when people are coming into the office, you know, with the common cold and say, hey, Go home, don't infect the rest of these people. That's the benefit to the entire community in those in those offices and in those spaces. And I think it's really uncertain where the future of, of AI machine learning, uh, facial recognition, monitoring software is going in, in the workplace. And I think in in all of this, and it's something that that we imbue really strongly into the, the modern data architecture principle that we have at Softcat. It's about empowering insight and empowering human-based decision-making. We're not trying to, to get rid of employees. We're not trying to get an extra pound of flesh out of individuals. And historically, machinery, whether that's physical machinery or software or technology, hasn't actually improved workers' lives all that much. It's health and safety legislation that stopped people dying in industrial accidents, not better machines. The guards weren't put on machines because of the benevolence of factory owners. They were put there by, by act of law and by mass action from trade unions. And I think as the collective consciousness, we become more aware of the impact of technology. Organisations hopefully are becoming more ethical. We're demanding higher standards of ethics and responsible use of technology. We can build a future using these emerging technologies where we do focus on creating the greatest benefit for the individual and for the collective rather than just extracting that pound of flesh. How that will work out is on everybody. It's, it relies upon all of us to be aware, to be educated, to have that critical thinking, to have this capacity to understand the technology and really consider the implications on people's lives at every step of the process. I think Lodz is, is absolutely right that it is all of our responsibility to try and protect each other because we're all, you know, whether you're the leaders of an organisation uh, or whether you're the workers uh, or whether you're a patient or whether you're a student, we're all going to be affected by the continuing use of AI. And it certainly has the potential to have a positive effect. The reality is legislation cannot keep up with how fast technology is being developed and that is my worry and the part of the question is it really positive to a point it comes to the intent again isn't it kind of crazy or or amazing to see that i guess as a technology podcast and as technologists and people who work in this sphere 
how few of our questions now relate to technology. How much of what we spend our time doing isn't about whether or not server 2016 is better than 2008 or whether AMD is better than Intel. You know, actually so much of that has become abstracted to the point where the job of the technologist is 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 much broader. It's much more about how we interact with technology and how it kind of impacts our, our daily lives because fundamentally it's so core to what we do. I just think it's, it's, it's so interesting to see if you look back even five or six years, you talk about technology podcasts, these aren't the questions we would be asking ourselves whether or not you know, we're technology is going to be evil and AI is going to take over the world or, or whether we're building inclusive work environments. And, and actually that's, as technologists, we're typically people who love solving problems. And, and I think it's quite interesting to watch that problem space kind of shift from what's the best database technology to use towards using those same techniques to go, well, how can I help um, make work environments that are more inclusive for, for people who are different? Well, off the back of everything you guys said, it's time for the most well-placed question in the script. Settle this once and for all. Mac or Windows? <laughs> to lots. As, as per usual, I have opinions. This is a, a divide that, that has emerged in, in my household as well because my wife has moved to, to Mac from, from being a Windows shop. So this is something I feel quite acutely. It depends. The right platform, the right tool is the one that's right for you to do the job. Apple's philosophy, they build very expensive, very pretty, sometimes exquisitely engineered, sometimes they put a crappy keyboard in and then deny it's a problem, devices that work as part of an ecosystem, that have a, a walled guard and a lock around them that ensures that they have complete control over both hardware and operating system. And having that, that vertical integration offers some real benefits. There's, um, this is a real kind of TED Talk style tangent, but if you, if you go and look at a pair of jeans and you look at the zipper on them, they'll probably say YKK, and they're the, the world's biggest zipper manufacturer. They make all their own machinery as well as the zips. They source their own brass, and that enables a, a quality chain that has made them the, the dominant factor. That integration from Apple does create very seamless integration. It allows them to add features that a set of AirPods work differently connected to an iPhone. They would connect it to my Android device, and you have extra features built into that. Personally, philosophically, I prefer the Microsoft approach. I prefer the Windows approach that... They are an operating system that is layered over the top of the hardware. And this creates a more open environment. It does create problems, and the, the Windows developers will, will tell you about you know, how, how they have to introduce a lot of workarounds into the operating system to make third-party applications work to support legacy. You know, they, they have not taken the same approach that, that Apple have, for example, with Catalina, and said, okay, no 32-bit apps whatsoever we're just killing them off. You've had your notice. And it means that I can go and buy this beautiful laptop from a third-party manufacturer. I can buy hardware from Dell. I can buy hardware from HP according to my needs and know that I will have a similar user experience, a similar environment, and that I can install within reason pretty much anything that I want on it as Windows is the de facto standard. Under Satya Nadella, Microsoft have made huge pushes into open source to embrace the community. And I, from a philosophical perspective, I really much prefer that approach. I think computing is something that should be open. It should be a community-driven effort. It should not be locked down. Some of the things that Apple are doing around the App Store, around extracting money and, and wanting their, their cut of the cash from companies like Airbnb is pretty controversial. 
And it's a function of the way they've created their ecosystem, which undeniably has its benefits. But personally, you know, I am a, a bit of an open source advocate. I like the open approach. I like choice in everything that I do with technology. And the Windows platform offers that choice to me. So that for me is where, where I sit. But I know we have, a, we have an even split on the call in device use as well as perhaps philosophy. So I'm sure my colleagues have got some interesting opinions as well. Yeah, the only thing I'll say is, is, I mean, it's a consumer-driven world, isn't it? And and ultimately, that's what drives most decisions. You know, in, in most homes, an Apple have grown because they make it easy to buy a device, plug it in. And if, you, if you're in an Apple world in your home life, they all seamlessly, to a point, connect in, but you locked in. But it's ease of use. And I think, going back to Lodge's point, it just depends how much flexibility you want with what you want to do with that device and the OS associated. But ultimately, businesses are getting to a point where, you know, we're seeing this on the end user side, you're opening it up to more options and more choice when it comes to the applications. You know, the SaaS world is growing dramatically. It's how you can bring those into a controlled, secure state. And Apple take care of most of that, but at the same time, they control all of it. And I think sometimes that's ease of use and it's great for home. It's great for people who just want to turn stuff on. But in the working environment, I think there's a there's a natural split on how you'd manage that moving forward. I just think it's choice and and it's consumer driven. You know, the Apple brand it's not getting smaller. There's a reason for that. We talk a lot, and I don't actually think we've mentioned it on this podcast, which is miraculous. We talk a lot about simplification and rationalisation. Is the order of the day, and. I was talking to some people about this the other day and they said to me, just talk about phones, right? We've chosen to go down 100% iPhones, iPhones for everybody. I said, okay. I said, why have you done that? I said, oh, because simplicity. Yeah, we want to we wanna make it simple. And then I just posed the question to them, who are you trying to make it simple for? And they said, well, us to run it. And I said, how many people are running this estate? And they said, three people. I said, that's great. I said, how many employees have you got? And they said, oh, we've got about 10,000 people. I said, so probably 30, 40% of those 10,000 people, so three or 4,000 people are Android users, aren't they? And they said, you know, finger in the air, but probably, yeah, that, make, that makes sense. I said, so for the benefit of making it simple for three people, you've made it more complex for 4,000 people, potentially. And... That's something that I, th- I think as an IT community, we, we throw these words around quite a lot. And you forget that to multiply simplicity by three or 4,000 times is more effective and will make your company more productive because people will be f- quicker to be productive by putting the simplicity at the user level rather than just looking at it from a single stakeholder point of view of, of the, the, the crew that's feeding and watering it. So I think that actually, I completely agree, and it is on the fence, it should be choice. But the choice isn't simply to be nice and be hippie and be and, you know, and forward thinking. The choice is really to help you focus, nail down on that, how do I keep my employees productive? And if you're at a point where the applications and the data and the working style and, the, uh, and all that type of stuff works, then by all means offer that choice. I think that Apple often get knocked back for being very expensive. The reality is you can make the numbers work. The residual value of those devices is much higher than uh, Windows devices, and you can make the numbers work. 
there is a, a fear about uh, complexity of integration, you can absolutely integrate it. I mean, we have a team that will literally help you integrate it with your existing set of tools. And yeah, we may add one or two little connectors here or there to hook your uh, Mac estate using maybe Jamf Connect into your Microsoft estate so you can use things like conditional access, but it's all very doable. And then there's the support piece. We can train you, we can enable you, you can outtask that like many people do for lots of other things. So it's all very doable. So I think when we throw around words like choice, it's not just do I have a silver machine or do I have a black machine? It's about can I, is that choice going to make our users more productive because we're making it more simple for the masses? And I think that really stands out. What I would say is when you look at your personas, you really have to understand them first. You know, there's the work style persona. Where are they going to work? When? How? Is it shift pattern? Is it kiosk? Is it one-to-one? -one? All that type of stuff. Where are you based and where does the support need to be based? Then the next element of a persona that we that we look at is, is, the, is the functional side. So the, the apps and data that you need to be able to drive. There are differences between the apps, simple things, productivity apps, Excel. I know from as a Mac user that I cannot use Power Query on Excel which is a big problem to me. So if you have people and you understand the applications that they need to use and the way they need to use them that just don't fit the bill, that's, it's absolutely fine in that situation to discount any technology that doesn't support it. And then there's the technical persona element, how much firepower you need. Some people need absolute monsters to drive the development work they're doing. Okay, let's move on from that then slightly. Um, uh, a question uh, for you, uh, Luca. What is the most important part of an organization's IT estate to keep protected from hackers? Is all if of they, it an I guess, I guess, you are, I was going to say, I guess <laughs> if, this is, if this is maybe so, you could only secure one part. Unfortunately, yeah, it probably doesn't work so much like that. But if I had to, if there's one part that is probably most critical, it's what provides the identity and authentication throughout the system. So whether that's on-premise Active Directory, Azure Active Directory, because so much ties back to your identity, whether that's the applications you can access, whether that's the access you have when you actually authenticated. So, you know, can I sign off expenses or am I can I just submit expenses? Can I make you know, swift money transfers to the Cayman Islands. Actually, that identity and authentication piece is, is the most uh, critical. And when we see cyber attacks that are, you know, highly impactful within organizations, they typically occur once the, the threat actor has obtained high level access to Active Directory, whether that's domain administrator credentials or, or something similar. So, you know, keeping your identity in a good state and that's not just about having a good password policy. I think, you know, we've started off very much there. You know, it used to be, you know, change your passwords, have a complex password, then it was MFA. And all those things are really important. But actually, it's it's creating a mature approach to identity, which is understanding that identity is much more than just authentication. It's about knowing who should have access to the right applications. It's about automating and managing that process as people's profile and persona changes for your organization and fundamentally removing those acts, that access once the person leaves. It's that whole life cycle of identity that is, is becoming really key. I'm sure people will have you know, heard the, the sort of noise and buzz in the industry about zero trust. And it's coming again back to the forefront with a new market segment called SASE. And that's where we deliver security as a fabric 
via cloud services to our users, no matter where they are, so on-premise uh, or, or remote or accessing cloud applications. And the reason it becomes super important is when you realize that everything now hangs off identity. Everything is tracking back to identity. You know, Can you log onto the Wi-Fi? It's now not just a pre-shared key, it's your identity. Can you plug into the network? It's your identity. Can you get on the VPN? It's your identity. Can you access this cloud app? It's your identity. And as we add more complexity and we add more roles, yeah, I think we're going to start to come a bit unstuck. And I think a lot of organizations are sleepwalking into this identity problem because everyone's going, oh, don't worry, I've hooked it into AD or I've hooked it into Azure AD maybe. And what they've not realized is, yeah, they have. Good job. That's the first step, centralization of identity. But unless you're going to be start building that management of, of how do you manage um, and that identity process moving forward, if we do end up in this cloud world where you have hundreds of, hundreds of apps and each of those apps has 40, 50 different permissions roles, that problem is going to exponentially grow to the point that, that all of a sudden you're, you're really not going to have any idea who's got access to what and, and whether that access is appropriate. So it is really key for organizations to take identity really seriously. Lots, another one for you. Um, can you explain why Huawei has such a shaky relationship with the government when other Chinese tech firms like Lenovo operate freely in the UK? At the outset, full disclosure, I am currently sat in front of a Huawei P20 mobile phone and a Huawei MateBook X uh, laptop. So that may give you some insight. I really like their hardware, I think. It's exceptional quality and some of the best that, that I have used. There's a couple of factors, I think, in play. Firstly, when we look specifically at, if we take, for example, Huawei versus Lenovo, a lot of the controversy has come around their involvement in telco networks. And globally, Huawei are the leader in, in telco infrastructure. And then the other players in there are the likes of Nokia, Ericsson, Siena, Cisco, Samsung, and ZTE. And so you have you have two Chinese firms, ZTE, with the subject of US sanctions. Uh, Huawei have been treated much more aggressively. Huawei are much more popular as a telco provider in the Western world. And increasingly, governments have started to realise far too late, in my opinion, that telecoms infrastructure is part of critical national infrastructure. And as a result, they are now wanting to retrench from allowing what they perceive as potentially hostile nations from being involved in their telco infrastructure. Huawei, like all Chinese companies, have a very close relationship with the government, with the Communist Party of China, because of the laws that are in place around there. And there are concerns that you know China undoubtedly is one of the largest cyber actors in the world, alongside the United States, Israel, the United Kingdom, and, and other large governments that have a significant cyber warfare, cyber intelligence presence. There has not been any publicly available documentation that suggests that Huawei and Chinese-owned and operated firms are a security risk. We have to take it to a certain extent as read that there is a security threat, there is evidence from the security services, which is a bit shaky given that a lot of this intel is coming out of the USA. There is a vested interest from um, the United States government in terms of protectionism, in terms of protecting its own companies, in terms of its image of um, the sort of image that 45 wants to portray out to the world in putting very very harsh restrictive sanctions on Huawei. In, in the UK, the UK is caught uh, between a rock and a hard place in terms of wanting to get a, a deal from the United States moving forward in terms of trade and Chinese sanctions are being used as a trade weapon. I personally think that 
Huawei being the outward facing brand of Chinese technology, you know, they are selling a lot of mobile phones globally. They are selling a lot of laptops. They've worked very hard to westernize their approach to make them more acceptable and friendly and seen and perceived in the right way in big markets, including the United States and Europe. And they also have an end-to-end ecosystem. They started producing their own chips using ARM designs. I'm certain they are going to be using RISC-V and other open source technologies if the, the route to ARM chips is taken away from them. So I would, I would say with a bit of skepticism, there is definitely a political aspect. I think that some of the concerns are based out of political motivations, out of Sinophobia, and out of the potential benefits to US-based companies, for example, were Huawei extracted from the telecoms network. If there is a legitimate threat to national security, which if these devices can be compromised, if there is a defined security risk by placing Huawei infrastructure either in the RAN networks or in telco core, then absolutely that would explain the, the increased sanctions versus the likes of Lenovo, who do not have a mobile telecoms infrastructure play. But I think it's very hard to understand, particularly in that sector where national security, government interaction plays much more of a critical factor than anywhere else in the IT landscape, what the, the actual threat is from Huawei and whether these sanctions are just versus the perception and the political motivation. I fundamentally agree with all the points Bob's has made. I think the challenge comes is that it's impossible to determine the future and therefore you're reliant on on modeling. You're reliant on threat modeling to to essentially go through what if scenarios to work out, you know, what are the likely outcomes, what are the likely mechanisms that could be used to 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 impact critical infrastructure of of that size and scale. And the challenge is that <laughs> there isn't a particularly easy answer. It's not like only working with organisations in the UK um, mitigates any or all of those risks because they are, you know, based in the UK. There's absolutely nothing to stop a foreign uh, nation or getting people hired by organisations. We look at some of the largest military leaks that have ever happened have been performed by people who are citizens of those of the of their own countries, you know, or who were employees of those uh, of those organisations. So. It's not like you can sort of wave a magic wand and and make these problems go away. I think the optic that you have to sometimes think about is that from a political perspective, if you wound forward time and people did go ahead with Huawei technology and something was to happen, it's the optic in which those decisions will be viewed under to say, well, actually more should have been done. And I think the that hindsight is 2020 piece is 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 what will what will kind of keep people awake a little bit at night. So I think that organizations are erring on the side of risk aversion. You know, they are, they're erring on the side to be cautioned so that actually when decisions potentially are looked back on, they can turn around and say, well, you know, see, we did think about it versus I think if previously uh, there wasn't, it wasn't clear that that thought process was, was kind of being, was taking place transparently. I just want to say that it's just this, you know, you got the conspiracy theorists out there that kind of, you know, wildfires exist in in the modern world due to various reasons and fear is driving a lot of the agenda and obviously businesses as well and i think those things combined are are quite dangerous um state-sponsored 
hacking has been happening. It's not a new thing. It will continue. It will get. It will grow, and they're all doing it. And I mean, the world's doing it. And I just think there's an, a, as a as a challenge, I guess, globally at the moment, where nationalism is taking precedent and the globalization, if you will, are working together as a community, a global global community. We seem to be regressing a little bit for various reasons. And I just think that that is that's the challenge. Ultimately, who knows what the right answer is? It's all of those things for me combined just create a toxic global culture and um and unfortunately you know you've got people with potential agendas business with agendas driving some of that so so for, for me it's it, there's no answer we're certainly not going to answer it on here and i concur with everything everybody said but i just think that there's this pandemic that's going on in the world and we're still having these kind of conversations i find it personally i struggle with personally. and and if you will people are using even that fear to to drive the agenda um and and i i, uh, I don't personally understand it Adam Harding, will end-user technology in large organisations ever be simple? Well, simple is a bit of a spectrum. What's simple for me is pretty complex for my mother. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, uh, that, that's the reality, is that it's not necessarily that there is one technology that, will, that, is, that is ultimately simple for you to use. You know, there's not one device that's perfect. There's not one application that's perfect. You know, some people are very comfortable with G Suite. Some people are very comfortable with Office 365. Some people are very comfortable with Apple. Others are very comfortable with Windows or, or, or Chromebooks. And that kind of thing flows all the way through. So as a general direction of travel, I would encourage organizations to think about where does the simplicity need to land? So I mentioned in, uh, in a previous question that a lot of IT organizations get overly focused on making things simple for them to manage rather than simple for the users to use. And I think that that is something that, that will probably change, but not particularly quickly as we're kind of coming into a, a time where cost management is going to be absolutely top of the tree, really, uh, and stability is going to be top of the tree. But in, in you know further out years in the future, I would hope hope that balance will be redressed. I think the other area where I'm seeing simplicity come into the the end user workspace really is more of a focus on helping getting away from simply surfacing applications or files in increasingly sophisticated ways. You know, through your phone, on your watch, to your fridge, whatever. So that you then still have to dive in three, uh, three, three panels deep to find the thing that you wanted before you can get on with it, and more towards surfacing the work. I'm a great example of this with our CRM system. I have no idea how to how to use it uh, to find out the information I need before a meeting about a customer. You know what we've previously done with them and all that type of stuff. So. In situations like that, what we're seeing is the people starting to lean on Microsoft Power Apps, uh, leaning on things like iOS and Android applications to create a bit of a skin that um, will allow me to pull information from multiple different sources into a view that I understand that the company can control and that's simple and easy for, uh, for, for me to access, essentially modernizing those old applications that most of us can't can't really get rid of because they're so ingrained in everything else we do. So I think that there will be a lot of the citizen developer type of activity um, that will be used to try and help you get access to democratize more data because more is being produced from everywhere all the time and to really simplify the access to the bit of information 
uh, and maybe even the knowledge base behind that on how to read that information and interpret it, I think that that type of thing will will, will, will drive forwards. When it comes to the fundamentals, so connectivity, devices, does my application start? Can I, do I have the right privileges? Then that's really about, um, again, we've touched on it quite a few times here, making sure you have the correct management tools and monitoring tools to be preemptive. I think what a lot of organizations are still in, this, in, the, uh, in, in the period of is being on their heels and they have to wait till somebody complains till they notice that there is a problem. Whereas we're going to start seeing people increasingly chase down the great organizations that are very much on their toes and that can be preemptive and that have full visibility of how uh, a trace flows from me picking up a device and logging in through to me interacting with an application through to that data being pulled and presented um, so that the, the banks are a very simple example of this. If they know because uh, that their cash machines on average break at the 10,000th hour, they will change them at 9,999 to get ahead of it. And I think it's that type of thing. And that's a great use of modeling and AI and machine learning to try and give people those insights that they just might not spot themselves. I mean, anything I'll say is, it comes down to what the business does, what it's providing its end user and its customer, what applications allow them to do those jobs, the devices that allow them to do those jobs. Bringing all that together actually is more, I think, simplistic today than it's ever been, but there's more choice. You know, it's trying to manage the operational aspect of it by giving ultimately more access to more devices, but really pinpointing, and this is where I think the simplistic area needs to come in. What is the applications that allows that group of people to do the job? What are the profiles within an organization in a particular industry that you need to be focusing on? And then gluing that together, operating it effectively, securing it. I think those things today are much easier than they were 10, 15 years ago. But it does come the fact come with the fact there's a lot of choice. And it then comes back to something Luca mentioned earlier. It's how you manage that identity, how you operate that, how you give access, how you give that flexibility to the user. And I think that we are getting to a world where it is becoming, from an end user perspective, more simplistic, and it will become more so. But there's going to be a lot more applications to use and access, and it's controlling that sprawl. I think it's going to be the challenge. It's almost like the the experience is now totally personal. And because it's personal, that means it's infinitely more difficult to manage because it's much more difficult to put people in boxes and, and wrap something around the edge of them because by their nature... You know they're they're going to have similarities, but they're but they're fundamentally going to be slightly different, and and that's kind of what consumerism gave us. It gave us the opportunity to be the sort of the masters of our own destiny when it came to technology, and you know you could just take your credit card and and buy whatever service you wanted. And I think as that's come into the workplace, that's created friction, and that's created a requirement for people to manage things in a more individualistic way. But that means the tools and processes we have to use have to evolve with that because if you want to give that true consumer environment while retaining control, while retaining a level of standardization, you have to kind of marry those almost two competing forces to allow you to have the flexibility and the visibility to understand what's going on so that you can make the right changes to the environment so that you know, you're just half a step ahead of everyone at all times. You know, it's it's that sort of Futurama adage that says, like, if you if you do it right, they won't even know you've done anything at all. And that's kind of the the point that we've got to get to is we have to be just ahead of our users so that they don't ever hit the barrier because it's when they hit the barrier is when they hit frustration, it's when they hit loss of productivity, it's when when what they have doesn't work. That should really be the goal. 
Simplicity is subjective. What is a simple approach for, for the individual may not be for somebody else or for the organization. You know, simple for me is having full admin rights on my company device. Now, I know why we can't allow that, why that's not a policy that we should have in place and by default it shouldn't happen. And I'm happy to, to work within those constraints. But being able to, to install whatever I want un, unsupervised as a technology would you know, make, make my life easy, would make things more simple, but is a bad thing for the organisation, is a bad thing for the, the collective. And I think that trade-off between what is, what is simple, what is effective, what is useful is, is something that's really difficult to make and something that IT teams are consistently having to make more of a considered decision around in terms of, to, to Mr. Harding's point earlier around the iPhone, standardizing on one brand of device for, for three administrators is the, is the most simple way to do it. And you could argue that iOS is, is almost undoubtedly the most simple mobile operating system for everyone. But actually, for that wider user base, the most simple answer is choice, because it's something they're familiar with. And technology has become fairly simple. And I don't think we're going to get any great increase in simplicity without losing functionality, but obscuring some of the needless functions. If you look at you know, all the things that a copy of Microsoft Excel can do versus what things that actual individual users use, that personalization, that customization that can be driven by AI, by machine learning, being able to, to surface things in a way that feels more human. The adage I always think of is kind of how your brain adapts things to make them easier. So if you, if you, you know, throw a, a baseball to someone, the way they perceive that is differently than if you give them a bat and tell them to hit it. Their brain actually makes the ball seem a little bit larger and makes it easier to hit that target. Um, because the connection between your, what your eyes see and what your brain tells you you see is a complete lie. The way we work with technology in terms of making, making those targets that you have to hit more simple and fading out the background, reducing the noise, and we see that with things like focus assist that have been brought into Windows that says, okay, I can see that you're recording an award-winning, excellent podcast we're going to mute your notifications in the background because that's a full screen app and we can see your passing audio and video. Those are the things that are, that are starting to come forward and making our interactions with technology more simple on an individualized basis. And I think that increased personalization, individualization, treating employees as individuals, as humans and understanding their relationship with technology, their individual skills and customizing and adapting to that is, is where we make things more simple. The organizations that I deal with that are great rather than just good at this stuff just have a couple of common themes, really. One, they are obsessively focused on understanding their personas. Our IT teams have proved that they can do absolutely phenomenal feats in very short amounts of time. You know, they've mobilized organizations that were pretty much wedded to their desks for you know, however long they've been in existence, we can be a bit braver about this stuff. They can certainly take on the complexity of understanding the six, seven, eight, nine different personas that make up their organization. Of those personas, the foundation pieces, the foundation elements will be very similar. It only starts to differentiate as you start to get towards the top end of how they want to use their applications and which data they should access. It is all very doable. And, and in reality, 
the technology is pretty much there today to achieve this, but you've just got to be brave and bold enough to do it. One of the other things I would say is when, we, when we're talking about this employee choice or freedom, let's call it freedom, because then that, that brings in the differing working styles you may have, the devices you may have, the applications you might need, that type of stuff. We're not talking about absolute chaos here. We're not talking about you don't have to have freedom with a capital F. You can just give it enough. I think the role of the, the IT as an enabler for everything else is to understand what freedoms give value to the company and which ones don't and focus on the ones that give value to the company. So avoid absolute chaos. And I think if you get that right, then that simplicity at the user layer and simplicity at the, at the customer layer as well can absolutely be a, a achieved. But it is progress. Our perception of simplicity has changed all the time. You know, I haven't touched a light switch in my house for a little while because she who shall not be named turns them all on and off for me. Um, I didn't know that, that that wasn't even an option not that long ago. And it's not something that I would have considered was something that made my life more simple back then. But the world keeps moving on. And all the signs are there. This is when we talk about crystal balls, it's important just to remember that old school message about consumerism is your signpost. Those are your North Stars. Pretty much everything we use now that's a bit trick, video calling, um, having um, enterprise file share and sync, people using chat rather than necessarily email, people having chatbots internally to help them get access to knowledge bases, you know, stuff cat habit for our, to help our, the masses understand Microsoft licensing, all that type of stuff. That's what existed outside of the organization for a long time. You can see it coming. Um, so you don't need to be scared. These are well-trodden paths. We're not asking you to be at the bleeding edge and pioneer something that does not exist. Um, your consumer experience is simple uh, and you can emulate the elements of that that actually bring you value. And by that, I simply mean that bring more money in, that reduce cost and reduce the risks of your business stopping or getting breached uh, or getting sued for falling foul of regional uh, legislation. It can all be done. I think sometimes where a lot of organizations struggle is doing the maths. They can't see how those marginal gains, a little bit across everything, when you multiply that across your user base, every hour you save is a thousand hours or whatever it might be. Those things need to be better understood. And I think if people genuinely, if the IT team genuinely understand the business processes, they would quite quickly be able to pick a few little bits here and there that would make a massive difference to the user's lives and would simplify. They'd remove repetition, they'd remove wait times before you can move on to the next thing. They'd remove duplication that is absolutely everywhere in every organization I look at. And you could do all of that whilst reducing risk, increasing the accuracy of what's, what's happening, remove, reducing the error rates. So yeah, I mean, I think we should, whilst we have this Whilst we're on a bit of a, the top of the mountain a little bit with IT teams being the heroes of what they've achieved during the pandemic, I think they should take that inertia on, be brave, be bold, and make the biggest difference they can. Well, that's a wrap on this season of Explain It. We hope you enjoyed the topics we've covered and the discussions we've had. If anything in this show or previous shows has piqued your interest, do get in contact with us, podcast at softcap.com. Don't forget to click subscribe so that you can stay up to date with future episodes and seasons. I've been your host, Zach Abbott. Thank you very much for listening to Explain It from Softcap.